Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility. Uh, today, we have with us, as always, Horace. How are you going today, Horace? Hey, I, you know, I'm, I've done, I've been doing better before. I'm, I'm a little under the weather. I have a cold, and uh, so, so my voice is a little bit less, uh, less melodious. Uh, but excellent. Where are you? Th- where are you in the world today? I am in New York City, Midtown New York, actually, and uh, I just spoke at a conference here in uh, Barclays, Barclays Automotive uh, Investor Conference, and I came from. San Francisco, where I spoke at a Honda event, which uh, ties into the Micromobility California event. Uh, Honda is our sponsor, so they asked me to speak at one of their uh, networking events, and it was really nice. It was in uh, uh, the, well, the worst thing was that it was it was smoky because of the the wildfires they're having, and actually the air the air we were outdoors in a in a patio type setting, and it was a shame that uh, we had this uh, pollution. But um, yeah, but yeah, it was uh, so. So just to remind everybody, um, Micromobility Conference is coming in January, January thirty first. Go to micromobility.io to sign up. Uh, we have a discount for for our uh, loyal listeners. Uh, it's uh, I believe Move Me, uh, or or was there? I think we have two at least. It's uh, uh, Oliver and Horace. Oh, it's Oliver and Horace. And how much how much discount yeah. do we do we have for them? That's a that's a fifty percent discount on that one. Fifty percent. Okay, it's better than the Move Me, which yeah. I think is forty. Uh, so yeah, yeah, Oliver and Horace, uh, put that into the uh, registration page and uh, and get half off. And uh, so we'll hope to see you there. In the meantime, we have a guest. Yeah. Oh, I'm very excited. I'm very excited. Uh, today we have with us Chris Cherry. How are you going today, Chris? I'm doing just fine. I'm so excited. I'm going to preface Chris before before we get you to introduce yourself. I started reading your work in about 2011 uh, when I was trying to understand um, if we're trying to radically reduce emissions in transport, um, how we can do this. And, and the work that you had done in China uh, way back in when you were doing your PhD was, was all the rage among this small group of uh, climate nerds. Um, and so I'm incredibly excited to finally have a chance to interview you <laughs> on a podcast. But um, I've got an interesting, by the way, that the, you mentioned it because uh, Chris came to me, uh, also as an introduction, uh, completely independently about two years ago from uh, Professor Levinson, who uh, I, we got connected yet another way, I, a very long story, but it's essentially... I was starting to look at e-bikes two, two years ago, and they said, oh, you've got to talk to Chris Cherry. And I was like, of course. And we had a call about two years ago. So uh, it's, it's, you're a celebrity. Ah, well, I, I don't know about that. And <laughs> I think uh, we heard the small world that may be a celebrity for a while. It, it, was, a very, it was a very small world about uh, five or six or seven years ago. Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? You're a professor at University of Tennessee, correct? Knoxville? Yeah, you got it. So uh, I'm a professor in civil engineering at the University of Tennessee. I've been here uh, about 10, 11 years now. And before that, I was a PhD student at UC Berkeley, where I uh, kind of discovered 
electric two-wheelers uh, in China. Uh, I, did, I didn't discover them. Someone else invented them. I, uh, I noticed them. Um, so uh, it really became kind of an interest of mine as I was, uh, I'll tell the short story, as I was uh, looking for interesting research topics as it related to uh, kind of rapid uh, technology change in the transportation sector. And uh, I've had quite an interest in China uh, for a number of reasons. Just the, the pace of growth and the scale of growth is really unbelievable uh, uh, when you start scaling things up into the hundreds of millions or billions uh, of, of people and of gadgets that they're consuming. And so, um, you know, I'd, I'd gone to, I'd been, I'd visited China multiple times in the early 2000s and then. Uh, like a, uh, somebody flipped a switch, I went in 2005 and there were e-bikes everywhere. Uh, they seem like they're everywhere then, there are even more now. And that prompted me to start thinking about uh, e-bikes as a, uh, or let's just say electric two-wheelers, some people will get mad at me for calling them e-bikes. Uh, electric two-wheelers as a uh, form of kind of disruptive transportation and disruptive mobility. And, uh, and so the moving forward continued to uh, uh, consider them and con continued to research uh, what, how they could impact transportation in, in China, but also in the U.S. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, I was, I was very hopeful that e-bikes weren't just a fad, a flash in the pan, and then I would be forever known as the the so-called e-bike guy that studied some irrelevant technology uh, decades later, but in, instead, of course, uh, e-bikes continue, or electric mobility, micro-mobility, uh, continues to evolve, continues to mutate, and um, it's fun to be along with the ride. So, so I, I, I love this. this so you were, you were even earlier than almost anybody uh, on, on this on this micro what we call now micro mobility and uh i'd love to go back a little bit to that time when you discovered uh, china e-bikes and I, I remember too a few years back when these were you could argue they were fad there's sort of there were many of these technologies go through multiple phases where initially they they they, they uh, seem to be too early and and, and uh, faddish in a way, but the, the 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 technological difference with the early e-bikes is that they were lead acid, correct? They were lead acid batteries, and they were mostly really just a motor, like a motorcycle, not truly a pedal-assisted bike, right? The the pedal X we have today in 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 Europe and in the U.S., uh, which would require pedaling to operate. Uh, are not the case in, in these early bikes. Is that correct? Yeah, so that, well, yes and no. So that's one of the uh, challenges with how we define an e-bike, uh, especially in China, is the technology was super simple, still is super simple. Most of the electric two-wheelers in China have low, uh, have uh, lead-acid batteries still. It's, uh, there hasn't been a lithium-ion revolution there. And part of the reason they came on the scene so strongly is because they were so simple. They were easy to repair. Uh, you could buy a, a, a electric bike for two hundred dollars uh, equivalent, and three hundred dollars, and and it and the the thing would break down on you all the time. And China had this ubiquitous uh, 
bicycle repair uh, infrastructure, informal sector that basically every other street corner had somebody uh, fixing spokes and, and wheels and brakes, and they uh, kind of made the transition and started uh, replacing battery cells and, and troubleshooting motors and electronics and swapping out components. Everything very modular. I've heard about that on this podcast before. Everything uh, very... Uh, component-oriented like a, like a desktop computer. You know, your hard drive goes out, you don't have to get the so-called Dell hard drive. You get another hard drive. Uh, your motor goes out, you get another motor. And so um, I think there are a lot of parallels with what we're dealing with in the U.S. or other places where you have this flood of this new technology, and it came on so fast in China that it, it kind of overwhelmed the, the system, it overwhelmed the policymakers, uh, suddenly talking about millions and millions of e-bikes every year uh, coming into the network, coming into the s- system in China. And that really uh, disrupted the, the specific, uh, very controlled, planned uh, motorization pathways that China was aiming for, motor, car-based mobility, transit systems, high-quality, you know, uh, uh, what was seen then as 21st century cities. Um, where, as mm. we know, in the last uh, 15 years or so, everything that whole image has changed of what uh, what that city looks like now. Yeah, it's amazing how China really tried to copy a, a Western blueprint, but but forces within it actually undermined it and came up with a better a better you know we would argue a better way forward, which is micro mobility. But right, uh, right. it was actually resisted initially. In fact, I remember stories about e-bikes being banned. And cities wanting to get rid of them because drivers were unlicensed. They were used for deliveries and other things. In fact, I'm in New York right now, and New York delivery guys are essentially using these uh, throttle-based uh, e-bikes, although with lithium batteries now. And, and the mayor tried to ban them. In fact, uh, it was a big. It, it, they were confiscating them, and it's many. It's it's fascinating to me how how this pattern repeats itself, where where these. Uh, these uh, these these small humble products are so are so vilified because they unleash chaos. They unleash certainly a lot of uh, uh, a, a lot of free for all. So I I just what what can you tell us then what happened in China as far as because I know we there's a there's a movement also around LSEVs now in China where where LS there are low speed electric vehicles, which are I think over 1.5 million were sold last year, or something to that of, of that magnitude. I mean, that, uh, out of a market of about uh, 25 million or so cars, and you know it's significant. So uh, how 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 is how is China coping with this now? What what are the regulations like? Can I also yeah, jump in really quickly? There's there's just one part in there as well, which is um, I'd love for you to talk. So as far as I understood, the reason that this was spurred on in China in terms of growth. Um, came from the regulations around um, wanting to ban two strokes. So that was sort of what spurred the initial early stage growth of, of e-bikes. Yeah, so as that, well, that, that's as, a, I, as I, gonna, I understood it. I think you're right, and that's what I was going to get to that point, is part of uh, China's grand vision for what a city looks like uh, when they were developing their plans and, and so on uh, excluded two-stroke, or it doesn't really matter, two-stroke or four-stroke motorbikes. Uh, most of the e- uh, motorbikes in Asia now are not uh, two-stroke motorbikes, but they didn't want to, uh, let's say this, they didn't want to emulate uh, Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh City where they're just flooded by uh, 
two-wheelers, gasoline two-wheelers. And so there was that pressure that actually created this, uh, this niche, this void in the urban mobility space that e-bikes came in on. And the original regulations for e-bikes really were uh, low-speed uh, bicycle style, well, let's say this, low-speed electric two-wheelers, okay? And, uh, and so the, the regulations kind of classified them as bicycles, and they filled in this mobility space that motorbikes might have filled in otherwise. And uh, so in, on, so, on one side, you have the industry kind of pushing grassroots from the bottom, like bottom-up uh, uh, pressure. And on the other side, you had some restrictions that were government-oriented, uh, top-down policies, draconian, you might say, policies restricting motorbikes. And in the end, you ended up with uh, what used to be lower-speed electric two-wheelers that kind of resembled, if not in form and function, a bicycle. Uh, and they transitioned uh, to bigger, bigger, faster, faster uh, vehicles that uh, skirt regulation and so on. So they've updated the regulatory space there to try to rein in uh, electric motorcycles, bonafide electric motorcycles that go relatively fast. But another point I want to uh, make on this one is we talk about somebody will look at an electric uh, two-wheeler in China and say, that's a motorbike. Um, and almost everything for the is a simple machine. It's a has a throttle to uh, actuate power. Um, there's not a sophisticated torque sensors and pedals and so on. So everything's a throttle assisted uh, system. And the the form makes it look as if it's a electric motorcycle. But the function, these things are very low. Ninety percent of them are very low speed vehicles still. They, Maximum speed is, let's say, 30 kilometers an hour or, or thereabouts. And they, they skirt regulation and other things, but in terms of compatibility with the urban uh, low-speed lanes, let's say bike lanes, they, they fit uh, for the most part, okay? There's bad behavior uh, here and there, um, but overall the, uh, the technology kind of fits within that performance envelope of a, a low-speed you could say micro-mobility device. Now, uh, I think that's important because as cities are starting to grapple with what a bike lane is, and should it be a low-speed lane, should it be a non-motorized lane, should it be a semi-motorized lane, what really matters is that the vehicles that are in that lane are compatible with one another uh, from a space, from a speed perspective. And uh, these e-bikes in China, are still super slow. Okay, I go back to back and forth to China every year, and uh, I'm kind of tracking the technology change. And frankly, they they look faster, they look cooler, they look like some sophisticated space age thing. But they're still running. Most of them are still running on uh, lithium ion batteries that don't have the power output to get you going uh, much faster. Uh, sorry, lead acid. You got it. Yeah, sorry. Well, indeed, and, and it's not the speed kills, it's speed differential that kills. It's, it's, it's if you are going so much faster than people around you or, or, or an obstacle, yeah, yeah. that's what really uh, causes uh, a, 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 uh, an accident. And I think that the whole thing is about how fast, what is the speed limit of the vehicle? And, 
you know, in Europe, there's a distinction between regular Pedelec and S-Pedelec. S-Pedelec is uh, limited to 45 kilometers an hour, and regular Pedelec is limited to 25 kilometers an hour. Now, as a result, the S-Pedelecs are not usually permitted on bike lanes. They're, they're considered mopeds, and they have to have a number plate. Uh, they have to have mirrors and lights and other things. Um, although this, this, some of this is starting to waver, and people are... Uh, allowing more and more as pedelec, but it's still a tiny part of the market. Um, so it's it's a so what 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 happened with your uh, it, when you began researching this? Uh, what did you conclude as as the potential for this? And and, and did you see this going outside of China? And uh, were you an early advocate for this kind of motorized micro mobility? Yeah. So. Uh... You know, if there's a couple of takeaways from the work that I've done over the years is that electric bikes are the absolute most energy efficient uh, mode of transportation that exists. I mean, the, the, an electric bike or even an uh, e-scooter, uh, all of these low-speed microelectric vehicles uh, are emitting about a tenth of what a even a Nissan Leaf or some really efficient electric vehicle emits at the use phase, that is, as they recharge their batteries and emit power plant emissions and so on. So they're even more efficient. They're, they're 10 to 20 times more efficient uh, than cars. Um, and there, there's really no other mode of transportation that can, can beat them on, uh, so far at least, from an energy efficiency standpoint even if they're getting charged up on coal power plants and the like. So that's one thing. The other thing is that they um, increase low-cost mobility for, for people. Um, and, uh, and that's an important aspect. That is uh, the, the model where you force people into uh, a mode of transportation that may, may not uh, work for them from a time or a cost perspective, or you force them into a car not force, you introduce market pressure to do those things. That doesn't necessarily work for everyone. So these micro-mobility devices, they actually provide a lot of really nice features in the sense that they provide door-to-door -door service, very low uh, cost, um, high mobility, and very low emissions. Um, so those are kind of some of the, the main findings. If you, if you, you can compound the, the emissions to health even more by looking at the fact that most of the emission sources, power plants, are not in population centers. So from a, from a greenhouse gas emissions perspective, they're great. From a uh, conventional pollution perspective, they're quite good too because they just don't have the same uh, exposure pathways as, as other modes of transportation, combustion modes, internal combustion modes. Um, Moving forward, we are trying to really want understand both in China and in the U.S., and I think this is the, the, one of the most important questions, is really the impact of a mode of transportation that's new on the scene uh, is really critically tied to the substitution behavior of those people. And so we've been doing the same survey in a, in a city in China for uh, since 2006. Every two years we go back and we do the exact same survey, exact same sampling uh, methods and so on. And we ask a whole bunch of questions about perception and, and, and uh, demographics and 
we, every once in a while we change up some questions. We ask about battery recharging. But the most important question in my mind is we ask questions about uh, substitution modes, not on general, not uh, uh, on a typical trip, but for very specific trips. We have them fill out travel diaries about what they did yesterday. And we ask them, if you didn't have your e-bike, uh, what mode would you take in its place for this trip? And over time, there's been a kind of consistency uh, that about half of our respondents would take transit. Uh, but the, there's been this growing importance of auto-based trips as a substitute mode. And, uh, and that, that was going up for several years. And in the last couple of rounds, it's gone down again as uh, subways and now uh, stationless bike share has really come on the scene and, and again disrupted the whole urban transportation ecosystem. So the point is, um, you hear a lot of people say, e-bikes are bad because people who ride e-bikes should be riding bicycles like they used to. And the answer to that question is, most, uh, uh, let's say many or uh, even most trips were not coming from e-bikes to start with. When you look at people's behavior on e-bike, or not coming from bicycles to start with. Uh, when you look at people's behavior, actually, and you, you look at their trips that they make, and you say, to them, you say to them, how would you have made this trip to the grocery store? For example, if you weren't on your e-bike, they'd say, I'd take my car. Or how would you have gone to work if it weren't for the e-bike? I would have taken transit. Uh, and so these are all things where uh, utility is generated because these people are, um, are choosing a mode that kind of maximizes their well-being and uh, presumably uh, is replacing a, mode of, uh, a trip on a mode that is possibly less efficient, like a personal car. Um, we have a survey that we did in, in state, nationwide in the U.S. of e-bike users. And cutting the data, we're trying to figure out exactly uh, um, the VMT replacement, but something like half of all of our uh, reported specific trips uh, were taken by um, car-based mode, okay, uh, that are substituted towards an e-bike. And, and there's almost no metric where e-bikes are worse than cars uh, in, in terms of sustainability or uh, system safety or mobility even. So those are, that's some of the takeaways, I guess, is, is that we, substitution really matters. That's the big question, I think, for e-scooters and all the other new mobility devices are coming out. And, um, and it doesn't get any cleaner, greener, necessarily, from an environmental perspective. We can talk more about that if you want. Um, a mode of delivery is a different thing. Shared e-things e is a little bit different, maybe. Um, and so, yeah. Just on that point, I think that a lot of the critics of the current trend towards uh, scooters or e-scooters or kick scooters that, uh, that have emerged in the U.S. at least, the Lime and the Bird scooter, um, is that these are these are not a good because people were walking and now they're taking scooters and so it's actually worse uh, from a health point of view and and an energy point of view. But I, I would I would I would question that again based on your your observations in China that um, these trips are substituting perhaps um, more automotive trips, but all, or 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 other vehicles, but. 
but I do believe that also they're possibly creating new trips because uh, the the uh, uh, availability of scooters everywhere uh, may entice people to uh, you know uh, make that journey that they wouldn't have otherwise. So this is actually one of the things that uh, scooter operators are trying to uh, get a get us get an idea on is to what extent are they creating demand for transport versus uh, uh, substituting. Uh, have you seen any data as far as whether scooters maybe are inducing demand? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Now, now there's this this notion you talked about a couple episodes ago of uh, basically uh, paraphrase generating positive utility, uh, where um, your the the enjoyment of the trip is, is actually increases demand for that mode rather than our traditional way of thinking about. Um, mobility as this negative uh, utility uh, uh, slog that we have to deal with to get from an origin to a destination. So um, there's, there's certainly uh, plenty of recreational trips, I think, uh, so-called joyride trips. I'll bet there's a few of those in the e-scooter realm. Um, and, then there's the, uh, and then there's the other types of trips that are sort of where the, the ends is the means for the trip. That is, gen the, the utility is generated by getting to work, okay, the positive productivity or whatever. So um, the important question, I think, is to understand how all those different modes uh, or types of trips are being, uh, are, are being developed within the system, and the implications are really important from that uh, safety, physical activity, um, and the health associated with that. And so I don't know, and I don't even think a lot of the scooter operator operating companies know uh, what proportion of their trips are, are serving different purposes. Uh, we're hoping to, we're doing a, a f bit of research along a couple of lines al already, or we're kickstarting some research, one on the physical activity and health piece. Uh, is our e-scooters a so-called active transportation mode? And then the other one is on this uh, mode substitution and behavior and uh, some of the safety-related work. There's a, a research center I'm part of, uh, the C Collaborative Science Center for Road Safety, that's uh, moving into this space trying to understand where e-scooters uh, fit in the kind of safe systems uh, framework. Um, if you have a bunch of people out joyriding, uh, that's I guess you could say uh, a good recreational amenity of your city, uh, but it's not really providing economic productivity. Uh, could be providing some physical activity of the people involved, but it might be coming at a high uh, safety or operations cost uh, to the system. Um, if, if, but you know, getting at this idea of uh, recreation is important. Getting outside is important. All this sort of feeds into larger uh, city health. Uh, those are positive values that, frankly, transportation engineers have a hard time getting their heads around, okay? And so, <laughs> yeah. spoken, you mean they uh, want to enjoy this? <laughs> spoken, spoken from a, a, a transportation engineer's uh, mouth, okay? So. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious. Uh, have you been watching this? I mean, when, when you first heard of Lime uh, and Bird rolling out these scooters, what was your what was your initial take on them? As someone who's you obviously studied this for a long time and you were, you, you know, you're you're totally bought into the um, to the potential of this technology. Did this take you and your and your colleagues by surprise? The the rapid rise of this. Yeah. So I I think if you asked many people uh, two years ago, let's say, 
if electric scooter sharing was going to take over cities and, and uh, shake things up dramatically, I would have thought that that was a little bit crazy. Uh, the, the first thing I thought when I saw people riding them was uh, my first instinct went straight to the, uh, the scene in the, the Disney, Pixar, whatever movie, WALL-E. I don't know. And I've got kids, so I've watched, I've watched, <laughs> I've watched that movie at least uh, 5,000 times, I think. But, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the decline of civilization, and, and part of that is uh, um, enabled by personal micro-mobility <laughs> devices basically lugging people around. I had the same kind of uh, gut reaction when I saw hoverboards. Uh, uh, people don't have to walk anymore. Kids walk uh, – kids around campus just putzing around. So um, on one side, that, that was my initial gut was like, oh, there goes, there goes civilization. But the other side, when you start seeing, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, when you start seeing uh, people out and about, uh, more, more uh, wheels in the bike lane, you could say, um, more uh, um, acknowledgement that there are, there are users of the transportation system that are not either pedestrian or uh, car drivers. I think when you start to see this critical mass of act, act, activity, let's say, I'm not going to say that they're, they're active transport, or hopefully our research will determine that to what extent people get activity on these things. But um, uh, the uh, just the, the visibility and the viability of, of moving by two wheels or by some other mode uh, really opens up uh, a lot of options, I think, for people. And and uh, you don't have to know how to ride a bicycle to ride an e-scooter, or you don't know how to, or or some of these other gadgets, for example. So, I like to I like to see that diversity in the transportation system. I think a lot of people want that, um, and I like that. Uh, you know, I, I hope bicycles don't go away. I'm an e-bike guy, but I I, I ride a bicycle, uh, and uh, and people think that's weird that I don't ride an e-bike, but. Um, so you know, I think uh, I think that uh, uh, just having a, a diverse set of vehicles is really healthy for a city, or, or, or so. There's there's no such thing as bad micro mobility. There's 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 good and you know there's there's good and better, but it's it's uh, it, I, I think it's always better to have people off the uh, the three thousand uh, pound vehicle and into the. Uh, the 30 pound vehicle i mean that this is uh, orders of magnitude more efficient as you pointed out but yes there is this question of uh, i i came to also from e-bikes as the first eye-opening uh, micro mobility technology and i saw scooters as, as also something that didn't seem right that they would for me it was more that they probably don't work in all cities especially those with not very good infrastructure for uh, the small wheels they have and, yeah. and also the weather, the weather considerations and how they might handle and the safety and so on. But uh, it, it, they seem to be very resilient, which kind of speaks to the low end potential here. And, uh, but they, they, uh, they've grown on me. I think if you ride one, uh, that's the biggest surprise is to the, the joy that it, it can, uh, it can uh, give the user and, and, People uh, are attracted to to fun, and that's what what, the, yeah. what they are. And I, I think that's an important aspect is is uh, kind of removing barriers to entry. We tried this with our bike share. We we ran a, a shared bike share uh, uh, system where we had a couple stations, a mix of e-bikes and conventional bikes, uh, and we, we put it out for a year and a half or so on UT campus back in 2011. 
And one of the big findings, or one of the big, you know, it's a, it's an anecdotal finding. It didn't make it into a publication, but everybody who rode the e-bike was just like, oh my gosh, I have no, I had no idea how awesome this could be. And uh, in a shared environment, you actually get a, a chance to touch a lot more people with that uh, sensation, with that that uh, excitement, with that, uh, like I said, this positive utility of cycling that um, don't normally get that. And, and there's not a lot of chances for people to say, I'm going to go ride it. I'm going to go try out an e-bike or I'm going to go try out an e-scooter without them being in this shared environment. Um, and so the shared environment just, you know, you, it's, it's fun to walk around cities and just uh, eavesdrop on people's conversations and say, oh, yeah, I'm, you, these things are so cool. They're only a dollar to check out, and you can go around the town and whatever, you know. And so th- that technology never would have uh, been in the hands or under the feet of 90% of the people that use them. Now. Oh, yeah, and the same same with, uh, yeah, so the, the S-Pedlugs, we had a, we had a uh, Corrine from uh, from Smide as a guest, and I've I've used the system in Switzerland that they uh, they are putting out, which is uh, based on S Pedelec. And the, 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 I didn't say this at the at the time, but when you ride these in Switzerland, uh, it's they're so fast and so powerful that you feel like it's almost shouldn't be legal. I get you you know you, you're having so much fun that it's like oh this this cannot last. This is too good yeah. to be to be. True, but uh, yeah, there are there uh, these these powered vehicles. We're used to as humans, we can output about fifty watts, maybe sixty watts in a sustained Mm -hmm. manner, and these things are able to put up five hundred watts. I think a small scooter, maybe two hundred and fifty, but that's a huge amount of power relative to what we're we're expecting our own bodies to to do. And so that gives you the sense of superpower, the sense that you are. You should be wearing a cape wearing this, you know. Draw, yeah. uh, <laughs> this. No, I'm serious. I yeah. think that there should, this should be the logo of these things. You know, you're on a scooter with a cape flying behind you. <laughs> that, that, that would, that's the what it, what it evokes, in my opinion. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Mm. yeah. I, I, you know, I think I think this goes back. There was this uh, article. Uh, you can look it up. David Bannister on the, a new sustainable. Uh, mobility paradigm and it gets back to this notion that uh, traveling doesn't have to be misery right and as I as I uh, ride my bike into campus I, I sometimes I'm like oh my gosh I wish I could get there faster or it was like 28 degrees this morning or something like that uh, but most of the time you think you know I'm doing what people what people that live in the suburbs do on the weekends to have fun but I get to do it every day. And, uh, and if we can build cities where more people can feel like Superman on an e-scooter, you know, back to that kind of childlike fun uh, where, you know, I brought uh, an e-scooter home on a little uh, trial uh, uh, test to see how much energy it used. And my kids run out and say, I've got to ride that thing. You know, they're riding their own scooters. And uh, I said, no, 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 I can't do can't do that. But uh, nonetheless, you get back to this uh, notion that um, transportation doesn't have to be miserable. Uh, it doesn't have to be a negative drag on your uh, productivity, on your day, on your happiness. On, and, uh, and I think electromobility, micromobility devices start to do that. They, they start to provide you the, the tangible benefit of getting you from point A to point B, and you can have some fun along the way. And if you can overcome some of the challenges that we've kind of chronically been faced with cycling and other things that is safe infrastructure 
um, this wave of vehicles can really put a lot of pressure on public policymakers to improve transportation systems that are compatible with them. Yeah, it was really interesting. I was in um, I, so so I I was in Wellington for uh, last last week, and there was a traffic. Uh, management conference and the Lime guys came up and so these guys are you know the traffic management conferences all the road planners in New Zealand getting together and saying you know we're going to be putting together reference documents for how we're going to be building our motorways in the future and the Lime guys turned up and just had a had a demo demo thing outside and all these traffic engineers went and took um, took these Limes out and um, <laughs> came back and you were trying to have conversations with them around you know how quickly they were thinking for, for adapting. And it's just, the, the, I think there's this sort of, um, as you say, you need to be able to put, put pressure on the policymakers to be able to make those decisions quickly. Yeah. And it's, I think there's gonna be this really interesting kind of tension that exists in cities around how quickly they can build that infrastructure. Because you know the, the planning timeframes that most people have for their traffic infrastructure is 10, 20 years. Um, and all of a sudden you're gonna have this explosion of scooters and that might happen in the space of a year. Um, where all of a sudden you need to sort of retro, very quickly retroact, re, retroactively refit a lot of the infrastructure in the cities. Yeah, and I think you know I think the cities that have uh, slowly over decade scales uh, built out their safe transportation infrastructure are, are kind of well poised right now to be in a place where they can adapt and can get let's say very low carbon transport uh, right away because they don't have to wait for everybody to buy a a Tesla or a Nissan or a Chevy Bolt or whatever. Um, and so um, the chat, you know, there's a there's a observation I've made in China and it, it's related to the, the rise and fall and, and uh, resurrection of bicycling. And I'm not sure, I don't have the data to show this yet, so I can say it on a podcast, but I can't really write it in a paper just yet. But um, over, <laughs> over the years, uh, you've seen this, uh, kind of anti-e-bike cities emerge. These are the ones that you, you mentioned earlier, where these, they, they basically uh, crack down on, on e-bikes. And I've, I've never seen a, a city uh, official say in public, at least, that they're anti-bicycle. So uh, just more pro-car, pro-transit. So what ends up happening, of course, in anti-e-bike cities is they crack down on e-bikes or other forms of motorized two-wheel mobility, and eventually there's not a lot of bicyclists in the bike lane. So then there becomes this pressure to, uh, f for the agencies and for the government to take over bike lanes and add car lanes or bus lanes or whatever else uh, to accommodate this, this surge of, of other mobility. And what has ended up happening, of course, is that's fine, that's great, bicyclists have been uh, marginalized to dangerous roads or sidewalks or whatever. And then uh, on the other side, you have the pro e-bike cities. And these pro e-bike cities, they've maintained not just good infrastructure, great infrastructure, and they've maintained it because their bicycle lanes have, by forces of mobility and other things, uh, shifted uh, to e-bike lanes, to these low-speed electric two-wheeler lanes. And 80%, 90% of the vehicles are electric two-wheelers in them. But there's so much capacity and demand for those lanes that they've maintained them. They still maintain their really so-called innovative two-stage left turns and all these other uh, cool little designs to protect uh, cyclists that they've had for decades that Americans and others are just starting to start 
innovating on. Um, and so what what's happened in the last year or two is all of a sudden uh, bicycling became cool again and with the advent of stationless bike share, uh, Mobike and the like, right? And it's cool because, you know, suddenly it's a, te a tech company that's invented it and it's part of my app and it's part of my ecosystem of services that I consume through through my app. And just like that, bicycling is, is no longer uh, your grandfather's or grandmother's mode. It's actually the future, a future mode for getting around. So the point is, the cities that have sustained and maintained their cycling infrastructure for e-bikes uh, are well positioned to adapt to this wave of stationless bike share. The cities that have given up on their on their bike infrastructure, in part because they've pushed out all this uh, intermediate demand, uh, suddenly have to figure out what to do with all these bike share bikes everywhere. With no bike share parking, with no infrastructure for them to use in a separated environment, and it becomes really hard to adapt to this if they wanted to. Um, so because of e-bikes, stationless bike share is viable in a lot of cities. Um, without e-bikes, I think that most of that infrastructure would have been gobbled up years ago by other technology. I think the same can be said for U.S. cities, kind of in a, in a sense that those cities with pro-bicycle uh, policies are well poised to take up whatever new technology is coming down the line, whereas the car or car slash transit dichotomy of uh, modes, suddenly it becomes really hard to fit these things in. Uh, fascinating. So, um, so it, it, as, as we wrap, just can you give us sort of your prediction? Are we, are we going to see micromobility increase the modal share of, uh, uh, so shall we say, uh, non-motorized or non-carbon non, uh, non motorized transport. Uh, is, is, this a, is this something more than a fad? Um, I think it will be. I think it's more than a fad. I think the, the rate of uptake is going to vary uh, depending on time. Uh, you know, cost of living, uh, house, cost of housing, I should say, is like uh, skyrocketing in most cities. And it, it seems like when we had our correction, that didn't last very long. So you, you have to get to a point where Shared mobility is part of it. Low cost mobility is part of it. You can't, you know, even car share or Uber or whatever automated car share, uh, uh, automated Ubers, doesn't matter. All that's really high cost, high uh, capital requirements that have to come back through user fees. Um, getting at this notion that you can have really good mobility for 80, 90 percent of your trips. Um, at very low cost, low carbon is, is something that's, I think, going to take hold. I think it takes uh, some innovation uh, from the engineers, from the planners. Uh, how do you deploy a network of uh, safe infrastructure in the scale of a couple years instead of a couple decades is really, really an important question. Um, and I think some cities are doing well trying to do that. Uh, some cities really haven't uh, haven't figured out how to do how how to do that yet. So, I think it'll take off and be really uh, important in many cities. Um, some will fall behind and uh, play catch up as they as they try to keep up with what's going on in in the the world of technology and so on. We'll see. I don't know if I don't know if that's an answer or not, but I would bet on many cities uh, uh, adopting this at really high rates. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. 
Cool. Okay. Any other anything else you want to add there, Horace? Uh, um, no. I mean, well, it, there's there's a lot, but it's it's like I think we're we're bumping up against our time uh, here, and uh, I, I I just I'm just very happy to have this time uh, with uh, Chris that uh, uh, gave us uh, both a, a, a long long ago kind of history. Not that long, of course. It's been only about five years or so, maybe ten. But uh, micro mobility uh, predates uh, scooter sharing. It's uh, uh, it has it has uh, had its uh, uh, um, variations in China, and and hearing about that has been fascinating. I'd like to uh, uh, you know I'd like to process this a bit more. Um, but the uh, this this idea that this has been an academic research for some time and. That's that's really uh, been uh, been enlightening for us. Um, thanks, Chris, for uh, coming on the show, and uh, hopefully, uh, we, we how can folks uh, learn more about your work? How can they uh, read up and, and and maybe listen in? Yeah, so great, thanks. Uh, so you can check out my website, chrisrcherry.com. Uh, but uh, the the there's a group that we coordinate, organize research around. Uh, levresearch.com is the the site. It's the Light Electric Vehicle Education and Research Initiative, uh, consortium of myself and researchers here at University of Tennessee that are interested in this area and uh, faculty and staff at Monash University in Australia and uh, Portland State University in Portland, Oregon, and so uh, we're, we're putting our heads together. We're we're building a tent, a, a roof over our research, and we're collaborating on different projects uh, as it relates to micro mobility. That's funded by state DOTs, National Science Foundation, uh, industry, many others. So um, that's where we we try to uh, keep up with that website, and we try to. Uh, post whatever we we're doing there um, and what other what others are doing there as well in this space uh, it's really a research oriented uh, website so you're you probably won't find the latest news there but um, uh, you'll certainly find out what the the researchers are putting out okay yeah I'm checking awesome. it out already so uh, and you'll be at the uh, uh, well of course we'd like like to have you at our, our micro mobility conference in in January if you're uh, yep. if you're up for it and and you're coming to the uh, the TRB conference, which is in uh, in January and mid January in Washington D.C. If folks want to connect with you, uh, I suppose they can reach you uh, there. Yeah, there will be a few micro mobility oriented uh, sessions and uh, events, a workshop. Uh, look up trb.org. You can find some information there. But uh, uh, the Sunday of that of that conference will be. Uh, um, workshop on uh, micro mobility and, and some of the issues around it and then some other uh, work there. So, so just reach out to me, cherry at utk.edu, for example, is one, one way to send me an email. Okay. Excellent. Got it. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks very much, Chris. Yep. Take Appreciate care. It. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.